Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. It's good to have everybody here today. Um, yeah, so thank you for, for making time to be here, to be present in worship. Uh, before we jump into the text, let me just take a moment and go before God in, pr- in prayer, and, uh, and then we'll just jump in, okay? So let's do that. Father, we thank you for your word, your people, your scriptures, and your sacraments of communion and baptism that we get to witness and partake in today. And thank you most of all, Jesus, for dying for our sins, we glorify you because of your resurrection and our justification that we receive because of what you've accomplished. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit and thank you for giving us our church family. We pray today, Jesus, that you would speak to us now, shape us in this hour, fill up what is lacking, and we pray that you would push fear, guilt, and shame and anxiety out of the frame so that we can see you, Lord Jesus, clearly. And it is in your good name we pray these things. Through the Spirit, to you, God, our Abba Father. Amen. All right, gang, so if you have your Bible or scroll in an app, go to Colossians chapter 3. We're continuing through our journey through the epistle, Paul's epistle to the Colossian church. And uh, so, again, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, just glad you're here with us, it, and if uh, this is your first time or you're new to Redemption, uh, and if you'd like some more information about Redemption, feel free to fill out a Connect card and then drop it in the Connect box on your way out, and we'll be happy to follow up with you uh, this week. So this week, we're continuing our journey through Colossians chapter 3. We're doing, as you just heard Jessica just read, uh, the first four verses, uh, and this is what theologians, here's your 50-cent word for the day, this is what theologians call uh, the paranetic section of Paul's letter. That is Paul's big exhortation, the big encouragement, the big focus now starts coming in coming in very clear here in chapter 3. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul laid a, laid a very strong theological foundation, and then chapters 3 and 4, he starts getting very, very practical in what the gospel is supposed to look like in the day in and day out. And so today, as we look at the heart of the letter, we're going to hone in on our identity that we receive in Christ. As you noticed throughout uh, the first couple chapters in Colossians, if you've been with us, you know that Paul has repeated this theme of being found in Christ. And so now he's going to really put the, uh, the spotlight on that idea and really bring a few more things uh, into focus. And so the thesis statement for today is very simple. It's this, because I know who I am, I know what to do. Because I know who I am, I know what to do. So to just let you get an idea of kind of where we're headed in the sermon today, we're going to do a bit of a historical context. Then we're going to look at one beautiful piece of theology, and then we're going to get into some very practical things that Paul lays out for us in seeking the things that are above in our daily walk with Jesus. So, the historical context. One, it's written by the Apostle Paul. He is in jail in Rome, uh, about 100 miles away from Colossae. Colossae is a city uh, founded now in modern-day Turkey, and Paul is writing a letter to encourage the Christians who are beginning to entertain other ideas, other philosophies, other 
isms, if you will, that then uh, come on the scene and start to bring Jesus down a few pegs and make him more or less as good as any of the other gods in the Roman pantheon. Paul is writing to this church that he never physically visited one of his companions, Epaphra, uh, as you see him mentioned in chapter one, he planted the church. Paul's writing a letter to these people saying, I want to remind you of your identity in Jesus, and I want to talk to you exactly about how, how big Jesus is and why Jesus is worthy of your entire life pursuit. So Paul is writing this. It's one of his prison epistles. He writes it in somewhere between 62 and 64 AD. Jesus, of course, as you know, roughly 30 years prior to that had been crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven, seated at the right hand of God. So roughly 30 years has passed and Christianity was spreading all over the Roman Empire. It had now gone outside of the city of Jerusalem and now is in modern day Turkey. 30 years, the empire is being turned on its head because of the proclamation of the gospel. But how? And among whom? Here's how Christianity was a religion that shared no allegiance to a state or an emperor or a political party. It was not bound by one's ethnic background or social standing. Christianity was no respecter of persons and didn't favor one human life above another. That is, the infant born into slavery was no less an image bearer of God than a prince born in a palace or a baby born this morning over in Bellevue. Class systems and traditional human ways of dividing up insiders and outsiders and those who would receive benefits and privilege and those who would not where all of a sudden, those classes were completely blown out of the water and now seen as being totally irrelevant to this community called Christ followers. As a result, Christianity began to seep into courtrooms and onto battlefields, into king's chambers as well as slaves' quarters. Christianity was found in the fields of farmers as well as in boardrooms in the cities. It was the only faith that recognized the gift and dignity of both children and senior citizens. Hone in on that next time you read your Gospels and you see children being emphasized. You won't find other religions quite doing this. Or senior citizens. Christianity favored the marginalized. Christianity was soon preached in Jewish synagogues and in the Roman public squares. If you want to just a quick crash course in that church history, the book of Acts is probably the best place to start. Uh, Christianity was quickly proclaimed among those who worshipped the emperor in Rome and those who worshipped Yahweh, or he was proclaimed, Christ was proclaimed among those who worshipped any of the hundreds of gods in the Roman pantheon. And so the message of the gospel of Jesus was relevant to everyone and available to anyone who would listen. And in fact, the more Christians faced opposition the broader the reach of the gospel went. It was more or less like stomping on a fire with gasoline all over your boots. It's just that the more oppression that came down on the Christians, the more the gospel went out, still to this day. So as Christians were run out of town, leaving all their possessions behind, the only thing they didn't leave behind was the gospel message. Thus, the next place they settled all of a sudden, they're proclaiming Jesus among a new people. 
This is how Jesus got the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth all the way to 2018 Green Lake here in Seattle, which is pretty all right. And uh, we're grateful for it. So Paul, and in fact, your entire New Testament was written while eyewitnesses were still walking around on the earth. And that's important to know. You say, why is that so important? Because Paul's about to say a lot of very spiritual things. And he's going to talk about your identity in Christ and seeking things above. And it can quickly be taken off into a realm of some sort of mysticism. It can get vague and mushy and gray in people's minds. And Paul and the New Testament is abundantly clear that this is not a religion of, wouldn't it be nice if God liked us? But rather, this is rooted in actual history. All of your New Testament books are written in the first century. And here's why that you need to know that. Because when the apostles in early church were walking the earth proclaiming the resurrected Jesus, there were eyewitnesses wandering around with them that could verify the claims of the resurrected Jesus. So we're not just going to talk about spiritual things. We're talking about our spirituality is deeply rooted in historical reality. Does that make sense? Okay, great. So, and if you, so the, the apostles were radically committed to reporting the facts about Jesus, facts that shook the earth, facts that changed their lives, facts that divided our calendar into 2018 Anno Domini for a reason. Facts that were worth dying for. In fact, if you just read one chapter this week in the Bible, go read Acts chapter four. Peter and John are on trial in court and under, uh, in court, they, this is their testimony and, and Luke records it. They say this, you need to stop preaching Jesus. And they say, well, we can't help but testify to you the things that we've seen and heard. I can't unsee what I saw. I saw the physical resurrected Jesus and I'm gonna act like it and I'm, I'm not gonna make up a lie here under oath. It's true. Like, well, we'll beat you. And they did. And the apostles walked out of that room rejoicing, having suffered for the name. Going, man, I'm glad I got to be a part of that part of the gospel getting out. Committed to the truth. So our belief in Jesus, this radical commitment to who he is, is rooted in history. I love that. That helps me because I doubt so much. <laughs> so there, um, yeah. So now, after Paul has reminded the Christians, the Colossians, of who Jesus is and who they are, that Jesus is superior to the emperor, that Jesus is superior to angels, that Jesus is superior to all creation, Paul says this, if then... If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So here's that theological piece I was going to mention briefly here. This theological thing called being in Christ. Um, if you've been raised with Christ, what does that mean exactly? Raised with Christ? After all, I mean, if you're reading it like I am, if you read it like, like I did this week, going, well, I wasn't there. Raised with Christ? Um, I wasn't arrested in the middle of the night. I wasn't tried before Pilate. I wasn't taken over here before Caiaphas, right? Uh, I, 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 I wasn't scourged for my sins. I, I wasn't nailed to a crucifix outside the city. Nobody placed me in a grave. I, I certainly wasn't there on Easter morning when Jesus comes out of the ground triumphing. 
I wasn't there. Was I? Was I? And this is where Paul's theology begins to stretch out this thing called in Christ. This union with Christ did not begin at the moment of your conversion. But in the mind of God, in the heart of Christ, you were represented in Christ before God. So here's what this means. Just as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden represented humanity, for those of us who are in Christ, Christ represents us, the second Adam. Whoa. And if you know anything about the story of the gospel, this will change your life. That is, when Jesus lived a sinless life, yes, I didn't study, for those of you who might not know the gospel, Jesus didn't break any commandment. When Jesus lived a sinless life and was flawless before God's throne as the perfect human, God-man, but in his flesh, Jesus merited righteousness before God. In Christ, Jesus gave you his righteousness. A perfect life. You do have to be perfect to go to heaven, you know. Well, how do you get that perfection? Oh, well, Jesus will give it to you. Well, what do I got to do to get it? Oh, just take it. Well, you don't know what I did. Well, he does. Are you kidding me? Just take it. It's a gift. Righteousness. In Christ. When Jesus died, Jesus was sinless. So who was he dying for? Who was he carrying within his heart? You. You. One way to think about it is to remember the Noah and the ark story. Everyone who went inside the boat, when the rain came down and fell on the boat, everyone who went inside was spared the wrath of God. When you're in Christ, Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the boat. Jesus weathered the wrath of God. And because you're in Christ, there's no wrath for you. When Jesus rose from the grave, triumphing over Satan and demons and death and hell and all the justice that we owed God, we were raised in Christ. Raised. Paul is so convinced of this reality that he speaks about it in the past tense, even though you weren't born for 2,000 more years. It's called a prophetic tense in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's called the aorist, a, passive, a, a past event that has present and ongoing eternal implications. You were raised. Paul goes as far as to say in Ephesians 2 that you were seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You're already there in the mind of God, in the heart of Christ. And so what Paul is trying to get us to lean into is this reality. So there's your theology this morning. Isn't that great? <laughs> in Christ. Union with Christ. If you just start, start, that's what you need to search for. Just be careful whatever you read on the internet. But anyway, <laughs> as if you needed that. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. All right, so. But here's what Paul's not saying. He's not saying that we are sinless. 
He's not saying that we are Christ. We are one with Christ, and yet at the same time, we're not Christ himself. We are not the same person, okay? We're not part of the Trinity, and we're not divine, but we are entirely united to Christ. So if you've been raised, and this if isn't a conditional like if, if you're a Christian, but rather the, the, the way it works rather is more since you've been raised, since, since you've been raised, since, because he's talking to a church, and a church are people that place their faith in Jesus. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. It'd be like saying, uh, like if Tove and Jude were playing in our backyard, and if I walked out in the backyard and said, if your last name is early, be at the dinner table in two minutes, they would assume that would be them. I hope that's what you guys would say. (laughs) Still the jury's out sometimes. Uh, But if your last name is early, be at the dinner table. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now this word seek uh, shows up about a hundred times. It's one of those words that shows up so often in the New Testament that uh, you can kind of just blow by it, you know? seek the kingdom of God, right? These things that you hear all the time in the New Testament, but because it's so familiar, sometimes we kind of miss the the punch of what the word is actually communicating. There's two ways to seek for things. Essentially, if you you misplace your, your gym shorts, you'll look for them, but you probably won't be frantically looking all night long going, oh my gosh, you probably get another, you probably get find another pair of shorts to get the gym tomorrow. Uh, but then there's a, there are certain things that you can lose and then you seek the way the Bible says seek. Uh, one example that hit me, I was reminded this week of uh, about two years ago when Jan and I when we, and our family, we moved back to Seattle. We were uh, walking around Green Lake and it was about this time of year and all the leaves were beautiful, right? And it was four o'clock and it was pitch black and it was just... Just taking our vitamin D in pill form like you're supposed to, I guess. Anyway, but we're, we're anyway, but it was, it was close to sundown, and uh, we, we had been out, and we had the kids' bicycles in the back of the uh, pilot, and we're driving, and Jan was like, hey, let's get out and let the kids ride bikes. I was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Okay, let's do it. So we go to Chocolati right here. We get our coffee, and we're walking the lake as you do, and the kids are riding their bikes right in front of us on the path, and they're about 10 or 15 yards ahead of us, and Jen and I are talking about whatever, and how, oh, isn't this great? And, and then the kids are gone. They figured out how to stand up on their bicycles and get going. And they were gone. And you want to talk about the utter moment of terror and panic that hits a parent's heart when you know we're next to Aurora and I can't find my kids. Whoa. It was like, it was on. Janet and I, Janet's like, okay, you take off running after him that way. I'm going to go this way around the lake. We're going to have to intercept them. Call me as soon as you, right? And so we, we, we hit ultimate panic mode and we're panicking and I'm wearing red wing boots and I'm running as fast as I've ever ran in my whole life. And it was terrible. And, um, but I was seeking. Jana was seeking. I'm telling you, if there was somebody standing there on the side of the lake right then with a check that's for $10 billion made out to Patrick Alexander Early, all you got to do is sign it, Alex. I would have said, get out of my way. I'm looking for something of infinite value to me right now. I don't need your $10 billion. You're frustrating. Have you seen a kid like this big and this big? No, get out of here. I don't need your money. I want these, right? That's, that's the flavor of the word when Paul says, seek the things above. 
This is why Christians fast. This is why we pray. This is why we worship regularly. This is why we get into our, our life groups. This is why we read our Bibles. This is why we repent of sin. This is, this is what we're doing. You seek. And this is what will not make any sense to unbelieving friends. As you're seeking the kingdom, it won't make sense to those outside of the kingdom because they're gonna go, you live so different. What happened to you? What has happened to you? What, do you? what are you on about? Like, you're about seeking the kingdom. So, Paul says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Okay. So this is not a call, by the way, to, to run a million miles an hour, you know, try to memorize the Torah in Hebrew in January and then read Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica sometime before Easter and plant 10 churches in Thailand before summer next year. This is not like, blah, radical or whatever, but rather it is a passionate, focused pursuit on the King of Kings who's invited you to rest and to work out your salvation. So, so what does it mean to seek the things that are above? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean seek to be the smartest person in the room. It also doesn't mean to try to sound ridiculously spiritual and make other people feel weird. <laughs> um, seeking the things above does not mean go seek angels. Seeking things above does not mean go seek pearly gates in a crystal sea. Seeking things above does not even mean to seek reunion with lost loved ones who are already in glory. Seeking the things above speaks to the things that are not natural to human beings. Does that make sense? Um, like if you read on down, and uh, Drew's going to cover these verses next week. I won't get into much of them, but verses 5 and 8, when you see the things that are natural to human beings, those are not the things above. Those are the things below. So rather than indulging in sexual morality, we pursue holiness and contentment and self-denial in Christ, and we put our lust under his lordship. Rather than polluting our minds and hearts and souls with impure thoughts and practices and that dishonor God and ourselves, we train our minds and renew them according to his word. Rather than wishing other harms, uh, others harm, we seek peace with others and so on. Uh, rather than coveting, we practice gratitude. So we, we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And there's a lot said about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. Here's what I don't want you to walk away with. It's picturing Jesus kind of like Homer Simpson, like in his lazy boy, watching TV, disconnected from reality. That's not Jesus seated at the right hand of God, twiddling his thumbs with nothing to do. Jesus is also not like a retired athlete with his jersey up in the rafters talking about the good old days seated at the right hand of God. No, when Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, it's a position of power, unrivaled authority. And because he's seated, it communicates the job is done. When he died on the cross and proclaimed it's finished and sitting at the right hand of God was a way of communicating to his people, I'm not frantically running around in the cosmos trying to work everything out. The work is done. I'm seated and I'm just waiting on the word go from my father to return for my bride. That's the image. That's the image. That's the image. 
How encouraging, how unbelievable our God that rose from the grave can now sit down and the earth is his footstool. Don't you love that psalm? He kicks his feet up and rests. But it's in a posture of glory, authority, dominion. That's our Christ. Seated at the right hand of God. So a very practical question then. Who has time to seek things above? After all, it is the holidays. It is Seattle. Uh, Everybody works 80 hours a week or whatever it is. And um, who has time to do that? Is it retired people? Is it pastors? Is it priests or monks or somebody else? Who has time to seek these things above? And here's the reality is, you do. You do. You do. It's like, I don't have time for a quiet time. Hey, here's the deal. And if you don't know what a quiet time is, we can talk, I guess. But if you grew up in the church, you know what it is. It's Bible study alone with God. Here's the deal. Um, nobody did quiet times until 100 years ago. Like, what do you mean? Well, the printing press burst onto the scene in uh, 1440. <laughs> there were no copies of the Bible laying around like what we have 10 of them in our house, that wasn't available. So Paul must have had something in his mind that you can seek the things above that doesn't necessarily always involve sitting down and opening the Bible. Like, did you just tell us not to read our Bibles? No, I'm saying this, that you can practice the presence of Christ in the day in and day out in the mundane and you don't have to seek the things above does not mean do Greek syntax, but rather, Seeking the things above comes because the Christ who is seated above has descended below. Does that make sense? So now all of your life is holy and you don't have to wait on Sunday morning to roll around to seek the things above. You can do this in your car sitting on I-5 rather than losing your mind and swearing at your neighbors. Take that moment as a posture of worship. The Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. Guess who's sitting still today? Everybody on I-5, do something with it. <laughs> you're welcome. You're like, <laughs> you're all gonna hate me tomorrow when you're in and you're like, all right, all right. But, but when you wash your dishes, it's not just a chore. That's not just a chore to do. You can take that moment and go, yeah, thank you, God. I have dishes to eat on. I had food to eat today. Thanks for the running water and the soap. I'm gonna do this as an act of worship. I know it's just a, a mundane chore, but, but, but Jesus is with me. And I'm holy because I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he's with me in this. You see? That he's with us in the mundane, and that's how you can begin to seek the things that are above by remembering the Christ who is present with you through the Spirit here below. So awesome. So we do. We have the time to seek these things above. I'll keep moving. Set your minds on things that are above. So he repeats himself, not on things that are on the earth. So one, one way that Jana and I have worked, we're coming up on uh, 15 years of marriage, and that's, it goes quick. Yeah, woo! Uh, <laughs> what was that, Ricky Bobby? Woo! Anyway, um, sorry. Um, but we, here's something that we've noticed about um, practicing this presence of Jesus that's with us in the mundane. And I found myself talking about it in pastoral care sessions lately. And so I figured, oh, I'll just mention this in church today. Um, we tend to think about Jesus uh, 
not as a distant uncle that dips in like once a year, but rather he's present with us all the time. And so we talk about him like he's normally in the room with us because he is. And so like occasionally we'll be at dinner and be like, Jude, if Jesus were sitting across the table from you right now, what would you say to him? Like, (laughs) I'd say he has something in his beard, like you. (laughs) Like, fair, okay. Or sometimes it gets more serious. Here's what I'd tell him. Math is hard. It is hard. Or, or, but we talk about Jesus in a way that's normal so that when it comes time to do discipline, we bring Jesus into the picture. And when it's time to do encouragement, Jesus is in the picture. And Jesus is a part of all of this thing. Not just a distant relative that dips in once in a blue moon, but rather he's someone who is presently with us. Does this make sense? This is how you can seek the things that are above. So Jesus says it this way in John 15. He says it, abide in me, I'll abide in you, right? Which is more or less saying, I want to come into the living room of your life. And I want you to feel comfortable with me. Can you believe that the God of the universe wants you comfortable in his presence? Like, I don't know. He is holy, and I broke all the commandments. How does that work? Well, back to the point that Jesus died for your sins and gave you his righteousness. He wants you comfortable in his presence. In fact, he's so crystal clear on this, the third member of the Trinity, his name is what? The Comforter. That's how we can begin to cultivate this way of seeking the things that are above. All right. So Paul is calling us to have an eternal perspective, to let the reality beyond the here and now shape here and now. There is a silly Christian cliche, by the way, that I heard growing up, and you might have too, that says, um, don't be so heavenly minded that you're, so, you're no earthly good. Anybody hear that one? Don't be so, you're like, yeah. <laughs> don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Here's the problem with that. Nobody's heavenly minded. Did anybody wake up this morning like really pondering the things of heaven? No, not really. Not, not really. In fact, it's the only way that we become earthly good is through being fairly heavenly minded. That's what Paul's insisting on. Think on the things above. Think about who God is and where you're headed and what, how does that reality inform the here and the now? For you have died, verse three, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. We covered the piece on we have died with Christ. Your life is hidden. What does that mean? Here's what it means. The idea is that just as Jesus is now physically hidden from the eyes of physical human beings, out of sight, at the right hand of God, the Christian's life, our life's source, is now hidden to the world. That is, as Christians appear dead to the things of the world, we are alive with a source of life that is not our own. Your life is hidden. Your life, that life source, that well that you draw from, that's hidden from the rest of the world. Your life, that's hidden now with Christ in God. Wow, 
You see, Paul's saying some things that are very, very spiritual sounding right here. And again, this is all true because it's rooted in history. The Jesus of history is the Christ of our faith. Your life is hidden. Verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Christ, listen to how Paul talks about our life. When Christ, who is your life, when Christ, who is your life, over the holidays, when you meet strangers at Christmas parties or on an airplane, what are the things that strangers say to each other? Before we even ask each other our, our names more often than not, what do you do? Well, it's because of Western folks, we tend to define ourselves by we are what we do. Paul is teaching us here, when Christ Jesus is not a tack-on. Jesus is not a weekend thing. Jesus is not a once-in-a-blue-moon kind of relationship that you spark up around the holidays. Christ, he's my life. My spouse, that, she's my spouse, but she's not my life. My kids are not my life. My job is not my life. My vacations are not my life. My, my whatever is not my life. Christ, Christ is my life. When I think Jesus, I think Christ is my life. He's everything. He's not a tack on. He's the whole point. He's the whole point. You remember how C.S. Lewis talked about, fortunately, the sun's out? Remember how C.S. Lewis talked about the sunshine and bringing everything into reality? Christ is our life. So our suffering is not what defines us. Christ is our life. Making more money is not my life. Christ is my life. So when, so this is, listen to the verse. Last, last thing I'll say is this. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When he appears here, you appear there. What is he talking about? He's talking about Christians, hang on. The king's coming. The king came in the first advent and now we're waiting his second advent, the returning of the king. From all the Tolkien people are like, yeah, all right. But stop thinking about orcs for a second and hang with it and go, so the king is returning. The king. When Christ is who are your life, when he appears here, you appear there. So when Christ appears, you, you, will put on immortality. You will put away all sin for good. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more famine. There will be no more death. There will be no more funerals. There will be no more reasons to say, I'm sorry. There will be no more ministry of reconciliation to be doing. There won't be ambulances and hospitals and police officers and firefighters to do all the things that they do to keep us moving through a broken world. When Christ appears here, we will appear there and all will be made right. Isn't that great? So church, this is for you today. Stay reminded that your life is hidden with Christ and God and not one thing the devil can do. He cannot pluck you out of the Father's hand today.
Not one thing, not the devil, not an enemy, not a critic, and certainly not your own flesh can get you out of the security that you have in the triumphant risen Savior. That's so great. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus and the gospel. Thank you yet again for speaking to us. We, we ask that you would take the words of your your scripture and apply them to our hearts and anything that I've said that's inaccurate or half-baked, would you just push that aside and apply only the seed of your, your word. Water the seed, Holy Spirit. Grow us as your disciples. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.